object of your deepest wonder reveals your deepest hope. It's not that being a Christian is going to make you better overnight. It's that the relationship between you and an infinitely holy God has become one of love and embrace. Because He loves you so much. And the reason why Easter falls flat on many of your ears is because you don't believe you're really loved. You're still striving to please God so hard that you've never learned what grace is. But He loves you. And it's very interesting to me as I think about Easter personally, the way that the Lord has called us to appropriate the power of the resurrection in our life is not for us as a covenant people to know certain doctrine or recite the Apostles' Creed or be able to worship in a certain way. It's to see the power of the resurrection lived out in our life. And Paul shows us a spiritual dynamic that gives us the power to do that. Because in the gospel are the resources for you to be able to face any challenge in your life, even though it may not be what you planned. It, your life may not go smoothly. It may be incredibly difficult. Welcome to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. Would you pray with me just a moment before we go to God's Word in reflection and meditation together. Father, would you take your word and would you marinate our hearts by it? How you use your word to change us, we don't altogether know, but we know that you do. And you command us to give attention to your word. And so, oh Lord, would you open our hearts, even this morning, to believe, to remove the distractions, and to help us meet with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have Bibles, please open to Luke chapter 24. Luke, in his gospel, is writing as a reporter, as a historian, who is trying to help a young man whose name is Theophilus, who doubted the truths that he heard about this person named Jesus. And so Luke writes an orderly account of all that Jesus does. And Luke starts with this amazing, wonderful story in the literal sense, full of wonder. The story of a young teenage Jewish girl, Mary, who is a virgin and yet she is pregnant from the Holy Spirit who gives birth to Jesus. And then he ends his book the same way he started, with wonder and amazement at how not just a baby, but through his three-year ministry of healing the lame and binding up the brokenhearted and forgiving sinners and scandalously, at least in the eyes of the religious crowd, associating with prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors. This baby is nailed to a Roman cross and Three days later, he rises again from the dead. And the book ends the same way it starts, with people marveling at what had happened. So, by the time you get to Luke chapter 24, all the people who believed in him were utterly despondent, hopeless, maybe even depressed. And at least five women 
come to the tomb to anoint Jesus with spices to take care of his body after Joseph of Arimathea opened his tomb graciously to let Jesus be buried there. And this is what we read happened. Luke chapter 24, 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The object of your deepest wonder reveals your deepest hope. When was the last time you marveled at something? To marvel means to be astounded, to be shocked to be surprised, to be amazed. When was the last time you marveled at something? The father clinging to the chain link fence, watching his child play an amazing game of tennis. The teacher watching her student masterfully perform the piano concerto. The retired couple watching the birds in their backyard, identifying them according to their bird-watching book, marveling at these amazing creatures, and then putting the book aside, and they stop identifying them, and they just marvel at the beauty of the cardinal. When was the last time you marveled at something? The object of your deepest wonder reveals your deepest hope. If you go visit the Grand Canyon and you come out of El Tovar Hotel on the Southern Rim and you, you find yourself at the rim of this amazing crack in the earth and the National Park Service has put benches down along the rim of the Grand Canyon. Why? Because they know that some people just need to sit before such beauty and marvel. Those of you who've traveled the world, you know you've seen these amazing architectural masterpieces. One of the greatest contributions to human heritage is a building built in the 1630s called the Taj Mahal. Anybody ever been to the Taj Mahal? It's in Agra, India. 
this amazing marble mausoleum built as a reflection of a man's love to his bride. It was built by the emperor Shah Jahan in the 1630s. And when one of his wives died in childbirth, he was so overcome with grief that he built this mausoleum in her honor, this tomb to house her body. And he didn't just want to build any mausoleum. He wanted to take the Hinduism of India and the Islam of his own faith and put it together in this amazing masterpiece. And so when you go to the Taj Mahal, you see this white marble, beautiful building with perfect symmetry. It inlaid in that white marble is hand chiseled pieces of inlaid marble, every one of them, to create a, a garden on the tapestry of the marble of the Taj Mahal. In today's dollars, it would take over a billion dollars to build. And he gave everything almost that he had to build this incredible masterpiece because he was so heartbroken by the death of his wife. And you can go to the Taj Mahal today and you can sit there and you can just marvel at the incredible 20,000 skilled workers it took over 10 years working every day in the Indian sun to build this in the 1630s. Marvel. When was the last time you marveled at something? In Luke's gospel, the word thamazo is the word for marvel or to be astonished. And peppered all throughout his gospel is this idea of marveling. And Luke is trying to help Theophilus recognize that I can tell you everything about the historicity of the work of Jesus. And yet you still might miss the point. The point is that the longest distance is from your head to your heart, Theophilus. And many of men have died somewhere in between. And so he peppers his book with this notion of marveling. For example, in Luke chapter 2, when Simeon waited for the consolation of Israel and Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to present him there, Simeon sees them in the temple complex and he takes up Jesus in his arms and he blesses Jesus and he blesses his parents. And his parents, it says, Luke says, and his father and mother marveled at what Simeon said about him. When Jesus first teaches in the temple, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And all spoke well of him and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. When the Roman centurion comes to heal his servant in Luke chapter 7, Jesus heard these things and Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. Marveling. On another occasion, when Jesus casts out a demon from a man who is mute, when the demon had gone out, the man spoke for the first time, and it says all the people marveled at what Jesus did. When Jesus calmed the sea, he said to his disciples, where is your faith? And they said, we were afraid. And they marveled at one another, saying, who is this that even... The waves obey him. When was the last time that you marveled? Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has historical arguments that we could make for it. 
when Paul is speaking to Felix in Acts chapter 26, for example, he says, I am not out of my mind, oh, most excellent. Uh, I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. And I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice, because they haven't been done in a corner. Paul argues rationally about the truth of the resurrection. And if you're taking notes, there are really four proofs, if you will, or arguments for the resurrection. They're all O's. The four O's of, oh my gosh, it really happened. Four O. O number one is that it was outside of the worldview of Judaism. They would not have expected it. They would have expected Jesus to be a political ruler. They would have expected Jesus to conquer Rome. But when he died... Their hopes were dashed. Nobody in the right mind of the ancient Near East would have expected the resurrection to happen. Certainly not an individual resurrection. A general resurrection at the end of time, yes, but not an individual resurrection. One scholar says that any first century historian would recognize that whatever is whatever it was that happened in early Christianity, they were expecting and wanting and hoping and praying for. It was not a resurrection of an individual. It was not something around which they would now have to reconstruct the whole of their lives. So it was outside their worldview. That's the first O. Number two, others. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul appeals to the others argument. He says, well, if you don't believe me, go ask the others. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. When the women came to the tomb, at least five of them came, and they saw the empty tomb. And, and most scholars, even those who don't claim Christianity, they believe that the tomb was empty. Now, they may argue and bicker about exactly what happened to Jesus' body. They may not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they do not doubt the empty tomb. But Paul says, well, go ask the others. Like, they're still alive. More than 500 of them. Peter Williams gives the list of who Jesus appeared to. The resurrected Jesus appeared in Judea and in Galilee, in town and in countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, interestingly, always talking. Many are explicitly close-up encounters involving conversations. It is hard to imagine this pattern of appearances recorded in the Gospels and Christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claimed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead because he had risen from the dead. Some people will say, well, you know, um, listen, Maybe they made it up. Women's testimony weren't even allowed in a court of law back then. Well, true. But if you were writing the story yourself, you certainly wouldn't say that the first people to see the resurrection or the first people to see the accident were a group of second graders who were like really high on like sugar and were really giddy. Like you might doubt that. And I don't know how to draw the analogy of the the, the um, man, 
paternalistic, kind of gross inequality of men and women back then. It's hard to find a good analogy for it. But if you were writing that story, you would not have written in the ancient Near East that women found his uh, tomb empty first, unless, of course, it happened. It was outside their worldview. Second, others, others saw it. Third, the oddity of the risen Jesus. It was odd. People would have expected, as Daniel describes, the resurrection at the end of time shining like the brightness of heaven. And in 1 Samuel 28, King Saul sees uh, uh, a ghost of the dead prophet Samuel who appears as a ghostly figure. And so certainly, if the gospel writers wanted to make up a story about a resurrected Messiah, he would come blazing in light. Instead, he, he comes so normal. Mary Magdalene has a conversation with the gardener, and she doesn't realize it's Jesus. Even his disciples didn't realize it was Jesus until they do. It's a little bit like if you've ever gone back to a high school reunion and you're in your 50s or 60s and you haven't seen one of your close teenage friends in years and you see them for the first time and you're like, Chad. <laughs> like he's the same but different. And Jesus was the same, but it was very odd. He's not shining in brightness. He's odd. He's ordinary. He's there. So, it was outside their worldview. Others saw him, the oddity of Jesus' resurrection. And fourth, the officers in the early church never debate the truth of the resurrection. Never. They can go after some other issues, circumcision and should we, should we circumcise Gentiles now who've come to Christ? But they never debate the resurrection. In fact, Paul uses the resurrection as the argument that he makes almost in every gospel presentation the basis of his hope and of his faith. In Acts chapter 26, as I mentioned, Paul says, I am not out of my mind. I'm speaking with true and rational words, but the problem is you can know all four of those arguments and still miss the gospel because the object of your deepest wonder reveals your deepest hope. And it's very interesting to me as I think about Easter personally, the way that the Lord has called us to appropriate the power of the resurrection in our life. It's not for us as a covenant people to know certain doctrine or recite the Apostles' Creed or be able to worship in a certain way. It's to see the power of the resurrection lived out in our life. And Paul shows us a spiritual dynamic that gives us the power to do that. Because in the gospel are the resources for you to be able to face any challenge in your life, even though it may not be what you planned, it, your life may not go smoothly. It may be incredibly difficult. John Owen, who lived from 1616 to 1683, was a 17th century Puritan. And this amazing man of God who wrote thousands of pages of beautiful theology that are very hard to read, he lost 11 children. And when his child, his little girl, she made it to age five, and the Lord took her. And a few months later, he lost his beloved bride, Mary Rook, and she died. So here's John Owen. These graves 
And yet John Owen says there are two ways for us to appropriate the resurrection and to see the glory of Christ in the resurrection itself. He says, first, we see the resurrected Christ as we meditate on God's adoption of us now. That God has adopted you if you trust in him by faith. It's not that being a Christian is going to make you better overnight. It's that the relationship between you and an infinitely holy God has become one of love and embrace. And he clothes you like the analogy, like the parable that Scott mentioned earlier in Luke 15. He clothes you as his son in his robe and he puts on the royal signet ring and he says, quick, quick, let's have a party because he loves you so much. And the reason why Easter falls flat on many of your ears is because you don't believe you're really loved. You're still striving to please God so hard that you've never learned what grace is, but he loves you. John Owen says the first way is to appropriate and to see the beauty of the resurrection in the way that the Father has adopted you as his child. Do you see that? And secondly, Owen goes on to say that we see the glory of the resurrected Christ as we set our hearts on things above and we live in light of Jesus' return to make everything new. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, and all of us who have placed our faith in him have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your spirit, is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he goes on to list various things, sexual impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And later, Paul in uh, Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul explores this spiritual dynamic. And in Philippians chapter 3, he gives his resume, as it were, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anyone has reason to gloat, it's me, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal. I was a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Man, I got every star in Sunday school. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, listen, worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Owen, John Owen says, if you're going to learn to appropriate the resurrection in your life, then you have to recognize that you must replace your lesser glories with something far greater. Whatever I have gained, Paul says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may be found in him that I may gain Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. And then he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his suffering, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, when was the last time you marveled at something? Paul Though he knows his theology better than anybody in this room, certainly. 
does not think about the gospel primarily in terms of creation, rebellion, restoration, recreation, the story of the Bible. He doesn't think of it primarily in terms of doctrine. He, he thinks of it primarily in terms of spiritual heart dynamics. And so when Paul says, I consider all of this rubbish because I know what the Bible says. No, he says, because I've been found dead and made alive in Christ. And I want to experience the power of the resurrection. How do you experience that? And when Paul talks about his spiritual growth, he talks about it not in terms of creation, fall, or redemption. He talks about it in terms of death, resurrection, and glory. As Christians, we, as those who have known the power of the resurrection, are able through the lens of the resurrection to be able to appropriate, appropriate our experiences in terms of death experiences, resurrection experiences, and glory experiences. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. Death experiences are those moments in your life when it feels like death. For some of us, that is a literal death. For some of us, that is a deep depression and a blueness out of which we seem to not be able to make progress. For some of that, it is being frustrated at the political machinery that so many of us have given our primary values to. It's the frustration that we have of seeing our friends and beloved in masks and the frustration when you just want to go hug them and you feel like you can't because I don't know, are you a hugger? Can we do it now? I don't know. Death experiences are those experiences you have when you go, oh yeah, oh Lord Jesus, come again. I hurt. Resurrection experiences are those experiences you have when you begin to see the dawn breakthrough, when hope renews. It's the moment when you see a husband and wife reconcile after a very difficult season in their marriage. It's the moment when you see a child come to Thanksgiving with you and celebrate after they have been away in college for many, many years, perhaps, or not been able to travel because of COVID. It's a moment where you see beautiful reconciliation between the races. It's the moment when we are able to join forces with those who have not been able to exercise their rights as human beings, and we fight for them to be able to exercise those rights. It's the moment when we're able to see the kingdom breaking through in earth now. Paul says, I want to experience the power of the resurrection. Yes, it was, it was deeply, deeply personal, but it was a way that he was able to say, I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus by bringing his kingdom to bear now putting to death the deeds of the body, loving those that are hard to love, opening our arms to those for reconciliation, forgiving the one that was very difficult to forgive. Glory moments are those moments when you see, rare though they are, you see the world operating as it will in glory. Those moments when husband and wife enjoy a blissful moment together, a time when you gather with a group of people and you feel that there's something palpable in the room that obviously is not conjured up. It's just, it's the presence of something amazing. We especially feel that in Christian worship. It's when you, you sing and you get to hear as we stop playing the music and you just hear people's voices. Wasn't that amazing? 
Like it was amazing to hear the voices this morning, just cry out after months of longing to hear voices and worship together. Those are, those are the glory moments. And Luke here says that Peter leaves the tomb. And Peter, what is he doing? He is marveling at what had happened. He is lost in wonder, thinking back about all the things that Jesus said. And now the dominoes fall, the penny drops. He gets it, even as he struggled with his own doubts. The hope of the resurrection is firm because of the historical reality of the empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection. But your deepest wonder reveals your deepest hope. And if your hope is in something other than the resurrected Lord Christ, you will find yourself like Shah Jahan, the emperor who built the Taj Mahal, who after he spent this enormous amount of his wealth to build this amazing tomb at which he could marvel and think about the beauty of his bride. When his son came to power, imprisoned him in the Agra fort uh, down the river, from the Taj Mahal and put him with lattice work protecting him, sandstone lattice work protecting him from ever escaping. And Shah Jahan died looking, marveling, gazing at his Taj Mahal. And scholars say that when Shah Jahan died, they wanted him to prop his bed up so that he could see over the lattice work and just look at his Taj. And friends, the Lord is calling some of you to replace your Taj's with the beauty of the empty tomb. He's saying that your deepest wonder is revealed, it reveals your deepest hope. And if it's anything that we create, if it's anything that we hope for, it must be found firm. And the empty tomb, which would have been outside of the worldview, which others saw, which was very odd indeed, in which the officials in the early church never debated. That empty tomb is the power to renew the entirety of human ethics and help us, you, not the person next to you, but you, lead in love toward the world because you have been empowered with the power of the resurrection through your adoption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Some of you need that today. Would you open your heart and say, Oh, Father, Show me the truth of the resurrection and help me to recognize that I am a sinner and that I need to be reconciled with you. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again, that you might allow me to be able to walk in the power of the resurrection and be adopted by my Father who is in heaven. The resurrection is the basis for human ethics, that's the reason why it's worth marveling at. And faith in the resurrection certainly doesn't promise that all will go smoothly, but it does give us the resource, the sure resource, that we can and we will be able to handle whatever God in His providence sends our way for His glory. And that is something no other institution which we hope can provide because it is found 
in the resurrected Savior who comes to you just like he did to his disciples. And he says, touch my scars. Touch my side. Examine it. See if it's true. And he is here with us even now, beckoning us to believe afresh in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would help us as your people to recognize and know that the resurrection is not merely something historical that we ought to believe in, though it is. It is a power that you intend to use to change us. And so, Father, we pray that you would change us by the power of the resurrection on this Easter morning. As we celebrate with family and friends, Lord, may we not rush too quickly to the fellowship of our own family even until we rush to the cross and our fellowship with you. Open the eyes of the blind. Help those who doubt to receive the Lord's table and to take, even amidst their questions, to draw near to you as you come to us, resurrected, in power, enthroned forever. And we long for the day when you will return when we too shall be resurrected with you in the coming kingdom. We thank you for your presence with us to strengthen us until that great day and to be your hands and feet in the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.